This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with former Great Britain athlete and turned coach Alex Porter. Now coach at the University of Essex, he discusses the university's success at creating professional volleyball players, some of the challenges the sport has in the UK and how it compares to its European counterparts, as well as the talent ID necessary for volleyball, as well as how he addresses some of the physiological challenges that are necessary for success in the sport. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Right, Alex, I know we caught up uh, briefly off air there, but how are things in your area of the UK? All good? Yeah, all good. Uh, we're based in Colchester in northeast Essex. and uh, It's a beautiful sunny day. So what else do you want in life? And listen, if you can get a sunny day in the UK, you're all good. I did speak to a guest earlier who's Florida based. So I don't think it's quite that um, that sunny, but we'll take it. UK weather at the minute, it's not too bad. Exactly. Um, for people that maybe don't know you, haven't come across your work, etc., do you just want to explain to them who you are and uh, yeah, and what you do? Yeah, sure. Uh, so obviously, my name's Alex Porter. Uh, I'm the head coach of the Essex Rebels, uh, which is the performance team based at the University of Essex. Uh, the Rebels for volleyball only started this year. Before that, uh, we had the performance program. That competed in Bucks, which is the uh, university league, uh, and we were linked with a national league club called Tendring, uh, which is where I learned to play at 11 years old a long time ago. Um, I have been coaching, well, been now 23, 24 years since I went to university, um, and I uh, only got into coaching because I got injured when I was playing. So from the age of what was it? 16, 17. I was part of the, the national team the whole way through until uh, 2006, when the Team GB started for the Olympics in London, was captain of that and then had to retire due to a knee injury, uh, which kind of sucked, as you can imagine. Uh, but then my kind of coaching become more of my uh, focus than, than the playing. Uh, and so I've been coaching full time pretty much uh, since around 2007, 2008, uh, in various different uh, guises, be that community-orientated, community club-wise, and the last 10 years at the University of Essex, uh, yeah, taking the programme from whatever, 80, 90 in the country to top three in the country. Not a bad going then in terms of uh, yeah, in terms of progression through the ranks. Um, I think we'll, obviously we'll come on to those other bits and other experiences. I think as a starting point for people that maybe aren't familiar with uh, volleyball, uh, particularly within the UK, but volleyball in terms of, a, I guess, an international sport, could you just talk through kind of what the pathway would look like for an individual that is interested in volleyball, I guess, particularly in the UK and what those key milestones are if you were to end up as a olympian at the top end where that where that could take you yeah so most people in the uk start playing at school or because uh, another family member uh, might play or, or coach be that uh, competitively or recreationally um so normally starting in year seven 
uh, at school, um, potentially even at year 10 at, at school. I know quite a few people that started playing during uh, their GCSEs as they had to take up a, a number of new sports and, and that fitted the bill for them. Uh, there's, you know, um, regional programs, uh, there's local leagues, regional leagues, um, and nine times out of 10, if you're in a part of the regional program, you'll get um, scouted or looked at by the national cadets um, and then national junior programs, under 17s and under 19s. Quite a lot of people play beach as well as indoor because uh, the, the seasons uh, run opposite of each other, which is quite nice. And, you know, it's there's quite a bit of research out there, actually, about dual sport athletes, especially in the US, uh, how it reduces burnout and, and allows them to maintain their focus for longer. So um, that's quite a nice thing for, for us to have both those options. Um, then the, the national team, the senior national team uh, will train. It's a little bit different now to, to how it used to be. But uh, in my day and age, we used to train every single month together. We'd come together for uh, Friday to Sunday once a month um, and train you know, once Friday night, three times Saturday, a couple of times Sunday. Um, so you've got the, the best players all in the same uh, sports all at the same time, which obviously helped us uh, develop. Um, we don't have a, a Team GB anymore. Um, just the way it, it works, you know, home Olympics, you, you get an opportunity to uh, have a uh, automatic qualifier. But the reality for volleyball is that Europe is the strongest region for volleyball in the world. So for us to qualify on, on merit, it's not impossible. Nothing is impossible, but just a, a bit of a tall order and we'll take some funding uh, and some strategy, which, you know, can happen. So, yeah, start in school, find a club, play local league, regional league, national league. Uh, even at the bottom of the national league is regionalised. So uh, there's opportunities to be seen at various levels uh, and then be invited to the national team. That's a typical uh, kind of journey but there's a little caveat there is that actually I know a lot of people that started I said at GCC level also know quite a lot that started at 18 um, and then they got involved in a, a club because of their physical attributes you know crazy tall and athletic potentially they they get uh, moved into a development program somewhere uh, and then their skills develop rapidly because they're surrounded by people who are better than them and so they're not necessarily practicing any bad technique. They're, they're being put on the right path at the right time for them, and, and they'll progress towards the national team quite quickly. You mentioned there around Europe being particularly good uh, in this space. I guess the first question is, who are kind of the world leaders? Who are the creme de la creme in that space? And why has it resonated in, in, in that area or those areas so much? Hmm. Well, I always describe Europe uh, in having similarity to rugby what in this country you know rugby is professional here there's various different levels of professionalism well it's the same in europe everywhere in europe is professional except the uk and but the uk is catching up so even if you lived in luxembourg they have professional players if you live in Liechtenstein, you know one of the smallest countries in in europe the, they have a women's team that plays professionally in the swiss league like everywhere, you know, there's different grades. So if you look at what I call like the A-Leagues, which is your, your Russia, your Poland, your Italy, players there are on, you know, some serious, serious money, well into six figures. In the 90s, Italy had million euro contracts for the year, like 
you know, the top rugby players will be potentially earning around that kind of ballpark. So, um, but then you can go down to Scandinavia and, you know, might only be on 10 to 20K maybe at the, the best clubs and the best deals there. Uh, but that's more kind of a semi-pro. They might have three professionals and the rest are a semi-pro. Um, why is that? I, I do always think that, that football, um, tennis and cricket dominate our, our culture, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just the way that we are. Uh, whereas in Europe, it's uh, more diverse. Um, and they also have um, some funding mechanisms that allow them to uh, create a professional environment. So there used to be a tax break in Italy for Italian clubs. Um, in Poland, uh, companies used to be able to nominate part of their corporation tax to go to a sporting ent entity. Well, if you're well connected within the business community, then you'll be able to pull in those kind of funds to take you to the next level. Um, we, we don't necessarily have that kind of culture in the UK. So we've got to take a, a slightly different model. Um, but yeah, so those are those countries I mentioned are the kind of the top. And then you've got like, you know, Germany and France and Belgium, Holland, who are just the, the level below that, like a, a B league, as I would call them. Um, and then C leagues, which are like your Scandinavia, your Czech, Slovakia. Um, yeah, so there's various different levels. And they're just my descriptions of those those countries, you won't find them written down anywhere. But when I talk to players and I say, I want to play professionally, it's what level professionally? So, um, yeah, they're the reasons why it's different here compared to elsewhere. But then it gives you a good idea of, of the, the kind of level. In Poland, you'll be more known as a, a volleyball player than you will be as a football player. Like, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, I was about to say, I don't think that you're going to uh, get tax breaks uh, in this country. I think that'd be well and truly staying in the, the, the government's hands. So I can see why maybe those other, other countries have got uh, more, more capabilities there. In terms of, you mentioned there's some individuals that would potentially look to jump across. How feasible is that for uh, you know athletes from the UK? And what, what is the type of pathway that they go through to, to go into those spaces? Yeah, so on the, on the men's side, we've never had a player go to what I call the, the A-leagues. Uh, on the women's side, we had uh, we had Key a few years ago, uh, who ended up playing in Italy, uh, I think Turkey as well, and, and played. Uh, she reached the European um, Champions League final, so uh, she's gone on to to a really high level. Uh, on the guys' side, most of our players that have gone on to play professionally have played in in the C and the B leagues, um, which you know is still enough to earn a living, and, and people can do that for. You know whether they're a one one and done or whether they go out there for ten years. It's uh, that's up to them of how long they uh, persist. But I can give you uh, a stat about our program. So we've had hundred and forty four no hundred and forty six athletes um, on our program since we started uh, ten years ago, and I can tell you we've had twenty four of our athletes go on to play professionally and 27 have won their first national team cap once they've been with us. So that doesn't include people that have been professionally, playing professionally before and then come to us. And likewise, it doesn't include people that have uh, played for the national team and then come to us either. It's, it's we've helped them progress onto those levels. So it, it is definitely achievable. Um, and, and other volleyball programs around the country uh, will have some statistic for, for them. Historically, Sheffield was really, really good uh, back in the, the late 90s, early noughties. 
Uh, Durham have had quite a few people. UEL have had uh, a number of athletes go on to play professionally afterwards. So it's definitely possible. But as with most things, you know, it's not easy. So people have to work hard, uh, dedicate themselves to it and, and maximise every opportunity they get. And in terms of, I guess, for you guys on a, on like a regional level, on the base level, maintaining participation within the sport, I'd imagine, is like paramount and having people that play and can compete and stuff and don't drift off because they see a difficult pathway or anything like that. How does volleyball as an industry make sure that there are enough players to be able to play competitive fixtures regularly in regional areas and all of that type of stuff? Because, for example, I, I spoke to um, judo um, players, a few judo players on here, Ben Fletcher, who went to the Olympics uh, with, with Ireland, etc. And he said one of the challenges he had was finding heavyweight uh, heavyweight training partners. He said, because actually not enough people stick at judo long enough to be good enough at it to come and train with you who are heavyweights. Correct me if I'm wrong, I'd assume that there's a similar challenge with volleyball. It's actually keeping enough people within the sport who can then become high level to allow you to, you know, have high level competition within the country to then be able to allow those creme de la creme players to progress where if, if they're able to. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely see your, your point of view on that. And, you know, every sport will, will face that challenge. Um, and we're in a peculiar situation within the UK. And I will use UK and England and GB intermittently. Um, so I have to explain that to when I recruit, like, the, uh, the postgrads that we have or the international athletes on our programme. Um, so we're in a peculiar situation where, like, for example, in the US the level of volleyball is insanely high within the university sector but club wise no it's not like they keep launching these professional leagues but they end up folding because they can't compete with the ncaa like the ncaa like they're you know there's a dozen teams out there on the women's side especially um that have got their own private jets like how can you compete with a university that's got that amount of money and um, like the University of Nebraska, uh, who are always up there. Um, last, last year, uh, it was them and a few other universities were having a battle to try and have the highest attendance. Uh, well, they've just gone and smashed it out of the park. So I think their attendance last year, the, the highest was about 19,000. Um, so they've been sold out in their venue for the last, whatever, 10 years or something ridiculous. So they've moved it to the football stadium. And they've just sold 96,000 tickets for a game of volleyball. It's not bad going there, is it? How are you going to compete with that as a club in the US? Like, don't get me wrong, it's, it's honourable to try and get that professional league because all those NCAA players come to Europe. In Europe, it's all club-based. It's not university-based. Yeah? If you're good enough, you, you might go to university, but you'll, you'll play semi-pro or pro for, for a local team in that university town. Um, Whereas in the UK, we have this kind of real kind of hybrid system where we have Bucks, the University League, and we have the National League, and the best university team compete in the Super League, which is the top club division in the country. So um, we've got this, yeah, this strange situation that allows us to target almost different people at the same time. Uh, and so 
I used to be a big believer of the pyramid. You know, you get enough people playing and it filters up. The longer I'm in this job, the more I think actually that's completely and utterly wrong. Because if you don't have something for the athletes, even the recreational players to aspire to, well, they'll just drop out. Because what's the point? You know, I know quite a few people, you know, they, they got their first national team cap in the juniors. And like, yeah, I'm done. What? You could play for your seniors. That's when we didn't have a senior team. No, I'm done. What, what, what else have I got to go after? Um, so it's not necessarily about uh, having the, the number of people. It's having the, the right opportunities for those people. And uh, again, if you look in, in history, so I like to look in other countries around the world to see what they do, because we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We have to look what works elsewhere for our situation and then try to apply as best we can. So in the, uh, when was it, the late 70s, early 80s, the USA uh, national teams tried to centralise their programme. You know, there, there's more players, sorry, more male players in Germany than there are in the US, yet the US were double Olympic champions because they've got the right structure in place, which... I think in this country should be bookends. I think we should really focus on the on the grassroots, get as many people in the door as possible, then focus on the very top to create a product that allows uh, those bottom people to aspire to something. And in the bit in the middle, let them kind of figure it out themselves. Because uh, if they're really that interested and really dedicated, then they will find their way uh, to the top. So. That's a kind of real long-winded question answer to your question. But I, I we don't necessarily have a, a problem with the number because those numbers are quite quite static. Like we are growing, especially on the junior level. Um, but I yeah, I think as a sport, we need to focus in two different areas, and that will allow us to flourish. And in numbers-wise, what are we in in comparison to like European countries and stuff? Maybe not your big hitters and stuff, but is it of people that have similar programs and not having a national team and stuff, would we say, would you say that we're ahead of those types of countries? Are we behind them? What does that look like? Or what, worldwide, actually, because Europe, you mentioned, is kind of the hub for it. So worldwide, what does that look like? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Yeah, Every country has a different culture for funding sport and supporting sport. So, um, yeah, it's a tricky question to answer, really, because we're not that comparable to, to other countries. I mean, you know, I, I played in uh, in Austria professionally and you had the, the Aeon League, the top league, and, you know, that was well run and structured. And below that, uh, I think it was another division and then that was about it, uh, at the very top. And then there was regional leagues. Um, just because you've got small numbers doesn't mean you can't achieve great things. Uh, look at Iceland. Yeah, they do great stuff. Look at, um, like in football, that is. Uh, look at uh, Sweden and, uh, and Norway in volleyball. You know, they're, they're small countries regarding the number of people that play, but they have a, a national centre that kids go to at 15 years old. And they've got some of the best junior, so best junior and now senior beach players in the world. How can a country of 8 million have some of the best athletes in the world? And you see that replicated again and again and again. Uh, if anyone wants to read about that, Mark Williams, um, he released a book last year, um, How the Best Athletes Are Made, I think it was called. That's a, a really interesting read because it talks about that. 
about the, the state of the countries, the size of the towns, whether they're centralized, where the coaches are, the demographics, like really interesting, right? So yeah, difficult for me to answer that question. No, no, well, good. As I said, it's it's a, I think an interesting point that you mentioned, like the way you use the resources you've got ultimately is is what's going to give you the opportunity. Looking at a talent ID perspective, obviously there's an element of physical characteristics to volleyball, um, which are going to be uh, you know necessary. How do you go around IDing talent? if you like, and put that in inverted commas, but how do you go around identifying talent? And then how do you go around identifying those that might have or might be able to progress into those physical capabilities that you need in, in order to play the game at an international level? Yeah, so, you know, GNT, gifted and talented. Uh, the way I look at it, if they're gifted, that means they're really tall. If they're talented, they're really skillful. Um, and there's a big jump from junior to senior volleyball uh, in this country. I mean, it, it, the jump is big in every country, but here even more so. Um, and the reality is, if you're not of a certain height, uh, you're not going to be playing in the in the elite stage in the you know, professionalism or for the national team. Um, there are always, always exceptions to the rule. Um, because they can make up for that lack of height with their physicality, you know, how high they jump or how quickly they're moving. Um, and so our recruitment process over the last 10 years has, has evolved continuously. You know, let's be brutally honest, when you first start, you've got to have bums on seats. There's got to be someone there to coach, isn't there? You know, and we've done we've done really well. And I'm very proud of the athletes that have been on the program. You know, we've had a few guys that were, were local league standard when they joined us, but they had the right mindset. They were dedicated and wanted to crack on and wanted to train, wanted to push themselves and their teammates. And um, we had a couple that went from that level that have got their first cap for the national team. Like, how often does that happen? Um, whereas as time's gone on, now we, we start to look more at the, the height profile or the spike touch that they can reach. Because if they're not there, like how do they expect to, to be able to compete in training? There's no point in us recruiting a five foot five female that has amazing ball control, but she can't jump very high because as soon as you go to the senior stage, you're an obvious target. And you know, we could teach her to, to jump high, um, but she's still going to be a target the whole way through her, her career. And, and or do we recruit the six foot two female that is, you know, only played a little bit, but actually we can teach her the skills to play at that level. You know, there's, there's a, a moral argument for both of it, uh, which I'm, I'm well aware of. But this is supposed to be at the elite end. So we, we need to, to figure out what do the players look like in their final year? I can't teach someone to grow. I can teach them to jump. And I can teach them ball skills. So, um, yeah, how do you do with that? And how how hard is it for you? Because I can imagine you'll have some people reach out to you that you go, you know, technical skills, they are capable, but you're almost got to go down to the phone to them or meeting with them or whatever and go, listen, you just aren't going to be big enough. Like, this just isn't from the physical characteristics of which you can do nothing about, 
Yeah. You're just not going to be capable of either coping in our environment or being capable to make that next step up. How difficult a conversation is that to have? Because it's not anything they can go away and work on. Normally, mm. as a as a practitioner, you're saying, well, if you go away and work on this, um, you know, it might improve. Now, I did just see a stupidly was on uh, Twitter earlier. I did see someone who decided that he was going to get he was going to grow himself. So what he did was break his legs and went oh, from being five foot five to six foot. But the journey of that seems carnage. I'm not going to encourage that to anyone. But yeah, how do you go around having that actual conversation in terms of saying to someone like, you've got to face reality a little bit here? Yeah, those kind of conversations are never never pleasant. Um, some people are, are very aware and they know. Yeah, and they're uh, like, you know, don't ask, don't get. Um, I, I fully appreciate that. And, and you know, if there's another role on the squad uh, within the programme, then, then you're welcome with, with open arms. But in that role, this is the end of the line uh, for us. And then there's the flip side, those that are not aware. Um, and they're the more difficult ones. Just just because they, they've not necessarily looked at, at senior volleyball. They've not looked at even the other guys and girls on our roster have not looked at you know the direction of travel that we're going um and realized that they're just not the right height or just not the right level and they're like oh i can i'm going to train every single day over the summer it's like yeah but you're still five foot two but that teams will target you if you were playing against us i would target you regardless of your ball control skills if you're blocking you cannot block as high as you know someone who's six foot nine for example so yeah, those, but those conversations have to be um, well managed, have to be done delicately. Like they're still a human being; everyone's got feelings, and it's just as uncomfortable for them as it is for me. So you've got to handle that um, delicately, so you don't damage their ego. Because you want them to keep playing, you want them to continue. Um, and some of them will be like, "I'm going to show you." Like, Brilliant. That's what I want. I want to hear you say, like, you're going to challenge yourself and you're going to show me in three years' time that it was the wrong decision. Brilliant. Please do go on. And, and I want to see you the other side of the net. I want to compete against you. Um, other people, just fine, whatever. And, uh, you know, want to throw their toys out of the pram after the phone call ends, probably. So, yeah, delicately is the answer. Yeah, and that's all she wrote at that point by the sound of it. Um, <laughs> In terms of managing uh, training, um, in particular, I guess, from the younger age groups, for individuals that are going to be of the stature that we're talking around um, and, you know, are going to be your middle six foot plus or whatever that looks like, high levels of growth are obviously going to take place, particularly in their you know, teenage years and whatnot. How do you go around managing their skill development or coordination during this point? Because something in football we struggle with, particularly with goalkeepers, where they go through growth and they end up dropping balls that they should or would normally catch or kicking the ground when they're trying to strike through and they're looking at us going, what is going on? And you've got to try and explain to them, it is just your body and it will, you will catch up. But how do you manage that? for individuals that are, you know, are going to be growing consistently all the time and trying to encourage them to deal with that growth, knowing that at the back end, you know, if they can get through it, they might be really capable. Yeah. You know, it's about trusting the process, isn't it? You know, out of that 146 athletes, we've only ever had uh, 
kind of two athletes who are in their first year break into the starting lineup. And one of those was already 21, 22 years old. So he wasn't a typical first year. Uh, and the other one had some real physical capabilities. I'm not talking about height. I'm talking about jump height here. Um, uh, and that allowed him to, to compete um, in his first year for, for court time. So they've got a part of the recruitment process is helping them to understand, you know, you're a boy going into a man's game or a, a girl going into a women's game. And that that's the reality. You will ride the bench for your first year because uh, you're not at the right level yet. And so there's going to be a lot of hard training. But in your second year, you'll start getting some court time. Third year, you know, if all things work out, you'll probably break into the starting lineup. Um, you know, it's all ifs, buts and maybes, but it's getting them to understand that there's very few of them that are coming from a daily training environment. Uh, and so that's a massive adjustment for them to begin with. For most of them, it's the first time they've ever lived by themselves, cooked by themselves, budgeted by themselves, gone to class because they have to go themselves. Mum and dad aren't there to get them out of bed in the morning and drop them off at the school games. Um, so that first semester is, is normally quite messy. For, for the first years that we have. Um, and as for the, the, the technical capability, you know, we do, we have two different types of sessions. We have our evening team sessions, which are very game focused. Um, we do what's called a, a wash drill most of the time, uh, which have always got a, an emphasis on that uh, for the week. And then during the morning, we have um, position specific sessions. So they're coming for an hour. Each position has uh, an hour. They'll come in and we'll just work on one specific thing. Um, and they'll get however many, 50 reps, 60 reps, 100 reps, depending on what it is, uh, on that day. Um, and so they get to kind of catch up uh, in different areas um, over that period. But as long as they know it's like process over outcome, most of the time I can take it. Um, and that's something we do look for in the recruitment process, actually, is their attitude um, and their mindset. You know, frustrations are normal. You know, everyone's going to get frustrated. I'm going to get frustrated. You know, but how do we deal with them? Are they, you know, challenges or are they threats? Uh, and so if we can demonstrate to them, you know, we're asking you to do it like this because that player does it like that. And look, he's one of the best in the world. Or she does this because she's one of the best in the world. Have you, why don't you try doing it that way? Now, we don't need to reinvent the wheel, yeah? And so we show them a path. Um, and if they stick to the path, they should see the progression. Uh, if they don't stick to the path, we need to nudge them back on the path. And you, you mentioned around the team drills. What would that look like from a practical perspective? So if you're delivering that with the group or to the group or collaboratively, um how how do those sessions normally look like what are the type of outcomes that you're looking for and how do you manage that yeah so like a team session would be two hours uh we have a strength and conditioning coach that, that most of the time runs our, our warm-ups which is great uh but before the warm-ups uh everything's written on the whiteboard the focus um the exercise that we're going to do the games we're going to play and then on the right hand side there's all these boxes so the players come in before the session starts, read what's on the whiteboard. So let's say this session is based on serve-receive. Yeah, and we're working on know, platform angles. Um, so they'll have a read on that and go, right, 
based on that, I want my goal to be this. So they'll write their name or initials and then write their, their goal in the box. Um, and then normally they'll have an accountability partner who's someone who's got a very similar goal. They'll check in with them uh, any little break um, that we have during the session. Uh, and we'll probably do one, maybe two uh, exercises based around that focus. So we might do, I don't know, let's say a race to 30. So like service Eve, let's grade it of uh, zero to three. And so you've got two teams going at each other. And it's the first team to get to 30. Um, and we know we're getting, we ask them to, to hold in check after every action so they can see their platform angle um, to see it was the right kind of angle or it needs to, to change the next time round. Uh, and then after that, uh, we might go into a wash drill where the quality of the reception is the number of points that that uh, rally is worth. So if the pass is really good, in theory, the serve-receive team should win because they've got more offensive options, so it would be worth three points. If the pass is poor, you know, let's say it's a one-point pass, then it's more difficult for them to win the point anyway. Um, but whoever wins that would, would get those points. Um, yeah, so the, the value of it is based around the, the quality of the serve received. And we'll do uh, a little bit of um, an AAR afterwards as well, an after action review where they'll walk around the court twice uh, with their accountability partner. Uh, and discuss, you know, what was planned on the board, what happened, why it happened, and how they can use that to develop themselves in the future. And, and you can see that the guys that, and the girls that really embrace that process, the ones that, that grow quite quickly, the ones that are hesitant with it uh, or don't treat it as seriously, you see their progress is, is quite slow. Um, and, you know, I'm... I'm if we do block training in volleyball, you can see very quick progress, but you get quite poor retention. Um, whereas game orientated, you, it's slower progress, but really good for a retention. So it's finding the balance act between the two um, for the players to see the progress um, over their three year period uh, with us. So that's kind of how a, an evening session would be structured. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned something around platform angles. Can you just explain? or idiots such as myself, what that what that means. Yeah, so uh, the opposition serve the ball over uh, and we want to pass on our forearms, like a, a dig. Um, and the platform angle, you know, if it's just trigonometry, isn't it? Like you want to change your platform angle, like your digging angle, so that when a ball contacts you, it rebounds towards the target. Uh, and so depending on the trajectory of the serve, the, the depth of the serve, the speed of the serve, the angle will be slightly different. Like if you've got a, a jump serve, for example, which you know, could be going 60, 70 miles an hour at you, your platform angle is not going to be pointed towards your setter, towards the target. It's going to be facing upwards or more upwards, should I say, because you're going to re-deflect that ball upwards. So then you've got more time on your side of the court to set yourself up. Uh, and then go and attack. If it's a, a low energy serve, then your platform will probably be tilting down a little bit more. Uh, and so when you re uh, when you deflect it or rebound it, it will go towards the target uh, on a nice uh, kind of parabolic curve. So yeah, it's the angle of your forearms um, is what we call your platform angle. Um, and there's very different ways that you can describe that or focus on it, whether it's in front, and away to the side and away with your dropping shoulders or tilting shoulders 
getting behind or under the ball, all different things that we can work on um, to change the outcome of, a, of, the, um, of the, the pass. Perfect. It leads quite nicely on to my next question, actually. In terms of the decision-making piece, how do you, um, how does dialogue on the court happen with that? So I know if anyone's watched it during the Olympics or seen it online, et cetera, you'll see points where you get a setter and you get dummies and it goes to the second or third person coming in under a specific time, or you mentioned someone doing that type of dig to go to a specific person. How do you guys um, and girls manage um, that within the game? Because obviously it's quite a short period of time. If a ball's coming at you at 60 miles an hour, that's relatively short for you to be able to adjust where you need to be on the court. So, yeah, how, how does that process work? Yeah, every team will be different. I can tell you that. Uh, I know some teams that are very prescriptive on virtually every single situation so if the pass goes here and it's a three-point pass we're doing this same place two-point pass doing that if it goes somewhere else doing something different uh i'm i'm of the the belief that we shouldn't be thinking during the rally so if you read uh you know thinking fast thinking slow um and there's some other uh literature out there that you know as soon as you introduce a cognitive process like a thinking process it slows down everything. It slows down your decision making, which then leads to errors. Yeah, because you can't control the speed of the ball. Like it's coming at you, you, you need to react. So we don't particularly want uh, any cognitive thought process going on. So what normally happens with us is that the setters will call a certain play or a certain tempo before the rally begins. Um, so they'll use hand signals to tell the attackers, this is what we're doing. Everyone's like, okay, great. Uh, as soon as the, the ball is passed in, we now know the quality of the ball. So now we can stick with what that was or the players will call something different. So it may be like, so we have um, we have three different tempos on the left-hand side. So you've got a, a six, which is like a high ball, a go, which is a medium speed, and then a quick is just like silly quick. Well, you're only going to run a quick on a, on a perfect pass. Like if you're what we call out system where the set is, you know, three, four metres off the net, you can't do that. It's impossible to do it. So on a certain situation, it might be right. You're running a quick there. You're on a 12. You're on a big. You're on an A. Uh, and the set is coordinating everything. The pass isn't good. And so then the outside might be asking for a, a, a go ball because he thinks actually it's still uh, a good enough pass, but not something that we have to like really slow down on. The player behind might call something different. Um, so we allow the players to make decisions uh, after the, the, the game has started, or after the point has started, based on the context of the game, because context is really important. And do you have, um, like, during that period when they're setting things up, do you have, like, the key, key stakeholders, if you like, of the people, like, when the ball's gone from this person to the next one, they will make the call or is it everyone at the same time communicating as things are going on yeah so the setter will uh will make the decision obviously where the, the ball goes um the the way that we do it is that after the quality of the pass or the ball goes up in defense now if it's what we said it was going to be no one really needs to say anything but if it isn't the, the right quality that we're after then the players will call and nine times out of ten, you know, let's say the setter is running from their base position across the court. They've probably only got two options now. 
So they will hear those two players calling for whichever one it is. They will see using their peripheral vision where those players are, whether they're on time or not. They'll know where the mismatches are on the block already because they will look that way before the point even begins. So they've got some ideas of actually where they want to go and then they'll be able to distribute that ball at that tempo. So we don't have a, a scenario where you've got five players or, or four players all calling for the ball at the same time. It's information overload for the setter. Um, but you've got at least two people that are, are calling for it and the setter can hear those and nine times out of ten see them um, where they are on the court and know actually whether it's a good decision uh, or not. And how do you get the players to take ownership of that or accountability of that? Because I can imagine like an 18 year old coming in trying to get vocal with a 21 year old in third year of Bucks. I know you mentioned that obviously they don't necessarily get loads of court time normally, but in training they would. So how do you get them to take accountability for the fact that like, it doesn't matter if they're more senior than you, if they've got more experience with you, if they're internationals, actually you're part of the programme. You need to be vocal and telling them what your expectations are at that yeah. moment for this to work. I wish there was a magic answer for that one. Um, so, you know, we'll uh, we'll discuss about things like what we call PTA, uh, PTOs, which are player timeouts. Anyone at any point can call a player timeout um, because they think something needs to be discussed. They think the standards drop below what they deem acceptable. That could be a first year, could be a final year. Um, and those PTOs are, are quite valuable because the players have to discuss amongst themselves normally in two groups, maybe in three groups, what's happened, why it's happened, what's the solution to, to move forward. Uh, and those, when people do call PTOs, I stand back. I might stand on the edge of one of the huddles listening in and then throw a, an occasional question in, but you know, they're the ones leading it. They're the ones on court. They have to take ownership of it. Um, and so like in wash drills, we'll have lots of quick little discussions maybe with the setters, maybe with the passing, you know, why you stood here? Why are you doing that? And a lot of it is open questions to get them to think. Um, again, they're not robots. You know, there are some countries in the world that will treat their athletes like robots. Do not. A plus B equals C. Eh, not quite what happens uh, in the game, but uh, you can go so far with that for sure. Uh, whereas I think actually having athletes that are informed and are able to make their own decisions is, is far more powerful, uh, even to the extent of that, you know, if uh, a player can help correct themselves, you know, whether, whether we've been using implicit or explicit coaching with them, you know, if they can start to fix themselves, if if they're starting to, to break down, then, you know, that means they'll get better quicker or they'll fix it quicker rather than having to wait for us or to, to say, like, what are you doing? Like, you're, you're starting up way higher than normal. Uh, you're holding on to the ball for longer than, than you should be or whatever it is. So... It's a progress, it's a process of just empowering them every single session of, of, you know, what did you think? Why did you do that? How did you come to that conclusion? Like replay it, what's a better decision or an alternative decision? Um, and just having those small conversations again and again and again and again to, yeah, empower them to, to make those decisions. And obviously you mentioned earlier that you've had quite a lot of success in terms of people transitioning uh, over to the continent and stuff and, and whatnot how would you prepare them for if they do go into that robotic style environment where 
one plus one equals two and there's no negotiating and you know there maybe isn't as as much of creative freedom or decision making or problem solving as as you provide them with yeah you know if you're a professional athlete so i've got a few friends that coach at the, like the very very top um of club volleyball in europe and you know they've got players that that don't really want to train and they'll turn up and they'll go through the motions and it's like they could be playing at an even higher level and in even more money if they applied themselves in training to develop themselves yeah like that's no, fine but on a weekend when they turn up on a game they light it up you know there's people out there that can do that and then you've got other people that have to work hard to to really progress day in day out and to, to maintain that standard and and so again it's just having those conversations with athletes that you do realize that once you go to Europe and you play professionally, you know, your job is not to develop. Your job is to win. And they, the coach doesn't care about you developing. The coach cares about winning. If you're not good enough, see you later. Next one. You know, people get let go at Christmas because they're not good enough. Like they got recruited, not, you know, not performing at the standard they required. They get cut at Christmas and they just recruit someone else. So, it's making them just value or understand the value is that actually we do care about them, not just as a, a volleyball player and, and but about them as people, because they are people, you know, and they're, they're, most of the people we work with are adolescents, you know, 18 to 22. Yeah, sometimes we have some 23, 24, 25-year-olds. Um, so it's a similar conversation every single year. Like they, That's one of the things I find frustrating about my job. You know, every year I get older, but they stay the same age. They're all 18 to 22. And I'm like, guys, I'm 10 years in. Why am I still hearing these conversations about X, Y, Z? Um, so, yeah, it's just those small personal conversations because the guys will ask as time goes on, like, coach, I really want to go and play professionally after this. And it's like, well, you need to work here, 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 here. Like, these are your deficits. Like, for you to play at that level, you need to to um work hard in those areas to for it even to be possible um yes yeah, so sometimes just opening their minds to the difficulties and, and unfortunately with brexit it's made it even harder i don't like to bring politics in it but pre-brexit any of us could go anywhere in europe and play so easy now they need to provide a visa for us now we are counted as a, an international in on some countries you're only allowed like three internationals on court um so now it's a, an up, upward uh challenge an uphill challenge for us um but it's not impossible you know and and i do believe that the likes of our program and durham and nottingham and, and uel and uh, and a few others you know we, we are pushing forward we are developing um, and if we can develop the right type of people and the right type of product, i.e. match day entertainment, I, I, think, I don't think it's that far off of us becoming a, a semi-professional league um, in, in the not-too-distant future. you just got to figure out a way to get 96,000 people there, right? <laughs> well, our record at Essex is 440. So Not that know, far off. No, but for, for UK volleyball, that's massive. Now, that was a, a Bucks game. At, you know, it was free to get in, uh, but the bar was open. Uh, whereas in National League, you know, we, people do pay to come and watch us. It's free for students, but the bar is there. 
There's a DJ, an MC, smoke machines, light display, player announcements. Like we're throwing the kitchen sink at this. Um, and it's not going to happen overnight. But to build a fan base takes a little bit of time and they have to be entertained. Uh, and so um, the athletes wanting to go abroad and play professionally, it's like, well, hold on. These people in the crowd are paying to watch you. So does that make you a professional, you know? You know, and we were all the same at 18, weren't we? You know, being professional about being paid. But now we're a bit older. We actually know it's about the attitude and the mindset. It's not about money. Otherwise, here's a pound coin. Go on, you're now professional because I'm paying you. I, it's about the mindset, isn't it? And your behaviours. And so if we can install those right behaviours in them, um, in theory, they'll become a professional athlete. In theory. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> semi-pro footballers now that are getting paid, but you're going, I don't think they classify as professionals knowing what they do at a weekend. So um, in tier like six, seven and eight. Um, in terms of, you mentioned like you've been in this for a while now, in your coaching perspective and a little bit in terms of you, you get older, the people you work with stay the same. Have you seen differences in terms of the generations coming through and what they're, uh capable of or what their preferences are or how they learn have you seen a, a transition in that space yeah i mean every year group's different it really is uh and i do think there's a difference between pre-covid and, and post-covid uh, and i think that'll work itself out uh in the next couple of years um the the guys that came in uh this year and a little bit of the guys the year before you know they didn't have that 16 to 18 year old you know rebellious stage where they get out and you know go find themselves almost uh, and so the the way they communicate is very very different um even to the extent of that they'll text me saying hi coach can i call you and i'm like it's called a phone the main purpose of a phone is to phone people like just pick up the phone and call me like you don't have to text me that oh sorry coach um whereas you know four or five years ago that that would never happen it would just be a the phone's ringing at whatever time and, and you pick up. Um, the and, and different groups, you know, behave in different ways. Some year groups are really, uh, it, it's not necessarily us and them, you know, between staff and players, but there's a quite a clear uh, glue between the players. Uh, and I would never want to interfere or, or um, uh, want to like you know try and become part of that but then there's other year groups actually where, where they try to bring me into that glue uh, that kind of keeps everyone together and they'll try to not necessarily fill me in on 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 jokes or whatever but they'll just I'm part of that um and that's kind of nice uh although I still feel like I'm the granddad uh, I'm not that old though um so yeah every year group's different and that's one thing I do really like about my job is that you know I don't have many bad year groups, but the ones that I find the most frustrating, I know that actually come September, the group will be different, um, and we can positively affect the culture uh, within that group, um, and we can positively influence the way they communicate with with us, the way they communicate with themselves uh, and their teammates. The and I, I call it proud dad moments. Every year we have proud dad moments. Um, and I'll, I'll give you one of the best examples. Um, this is going back pre-COVID. We had a, a player in their first year who was not making the right decisions, shall we say. They were injured 
Um, and so they weren't doing anything in training, uh, just coming along. Um, and then, you know, straight after training, they were suggesting about going out uh, to the to nightclub. Um, and that was the night before a game and they were trying to entice a couple of the people to go with them. So uh, later in the week, two players come up to me, two final year students. Coach, can we have a word? I'm like, yeah, sure. Um, and they raise this. And they're like, we think she, she's making poor decisions. And I was like, okay, well, what's the best way to, you know, help her make better decisions? And they're like, if you talk to her. I'm like, how often do you do what your dad tell you to do? Yeah. But when your friend suggests something, you'll do it. And they looked at me and went, we're going to talk with her. And I'm like, yes. And if that doesn't work, then I'll step in. Yeah. And they went and spoke to her. Fast forward two years. This player comes up to me. Coach, can I have a word? I'm like, of course. Step into my office. Right. There's this player in the first year. And she's making really bad decisions. And she's doing this and doing that and, like, getting all kind of animated about it. I'm like, oh, hey, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, no, that sounds familiar. And um, she's like, you need to talk to them. I was like, are you sure about that? And she's like, yes, definitely you need to talk to them. I was like, I know someone else that was like that. Who? And I just looked at her and raised my eyebrows. And she just paused for a second. She's like, not me. I was like, really? And then she's like, oh. Oh, oh, yeah, I was a bit like that, wasn't I? And um, I was like, did anyone come up to you and have a conversation with, with you in your first year? She's like, oh, yeah, yeah, so and so and so and so come spoke to me. I was like, and how powerful was that message? She's like, yeah, that, that made me reevaluate things and got me to where I am today. I like, so what's going to happen next? She's like, oh, God, I'm going to go talk to him, aren't I? <laughs> and I just laughed. I was like, yes, you are. And if it doesn't work, I'll step in. So like, that's a proud, proud moment for me, you know, where they've come from being a kid to being an adult. Um, and sometimes that's that kind of scenario. Uh, other times, you know, we've had people that not been making right decisions and it doesn't matter we've spoke to them or the players spoke to them and we're, we're on the verge of letting them go. Um, and for whatever reason, we decide to give them one more chance and then they end up becoming one of the captains, one of the leadership group. And you're like, do you know you were this close to going? that close and um so people do change they do grow um and that that's really exciting for me i, I like seeing that development in, in people um and i've completely forgotten what your question was now but no uh, i listen i think that's actually looking at the time as well a really nice point to finish on because like you said there about giving people accountability for you know mm. the culture of the group everyone talks about how do you develop culture how you know yeah, how do you create a high-performance culture? Well, it is a little bit of that, right? It's the mm. players understanding what the expectation expectations and standards are, saying that we don't we youth we think you're falling outside of it currently, and mm. granted with a little bit of support from yourself, being willing to go and address that with a team member, which hopefully allows them to plant the seed of going actually I'm going to make a little bit of a change here to try and make myself better but make the environment better so I think that's a really nice playback of actually how culture can be manifested in 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 um yeah in a sporting situation so last question for me which is if I were to speak to any of the athletes that you work with how would you hope they described you in three words and why oh that's that's a good one uh caring 
I think will be the first one. Tall. <laughs> I'm six foot nine, two meters three. Uh, I think will be the second one. Um, and I think dedicated would be the, the third one because, you know, this is... This isn't a job where we're making a million bucks here, you know? Um, we, we do it for other reasons. And the amount of hours that we do, um, let's hope HR doesn't track. <laughs> uh, because, because it is, it's immersive. It's such an immersive role. Uh, and, the, you know, the, I said the last two year groups, three year groups in the, the COVID year where we, we didn't actually get to do much, we we done a bucket load online with them. Um, but they, Think they, they are now appreciating of actually how stretched we are um and they are now starting to uh, understand like mondays is daddy daycare uh, i spend uh all day with my two-year-old on a, on a monday uh, my four-year-old's at school so i pick her up and do rainbows and swimming and whatnot um and i'm like guys do not contact me on monday like you are not the focus of my life on a monday if it's urgent obviously call me but like they're now kind of respecting those boundaries that uh, they'll only contact me, you know, uh, at other times. Um, because I realise that I am pretty much available 24-7 and I, you know, quite relentless in, in learning. I'm a lifelong learner, you know, going to watch other coaches and, and how they work, uh, speaking to other coaches in the world to, to see how they structure things and what can we learn. And so, yeah, caring, tall, dedicated. Perfect. Listen, Alex, really appreciate your time. I think a fascinating insight into, into volleyball and, and, and your workings and stuff. And so I'm sure a lot of people have taken a lot of a lot of use from uh, the bits that you said. But yeah, really appreciate your time and catch you again soon. Welcome. No problem. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.